me and Alexa. We are from North Carolina. We are super excited to be here. Um, we love the Claytons, and, and I'm very humbled by this opportunity. Um, it's, it's kind of a dangerous thing to let a seminary student um, preach because we're learning so many things, and you give us the slightest opportunity, we're just going to explode with, with everything that we've been taught. Um, so I apologize in advance if you feel like we're trying to drink out of a fire hose this morning. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to, to keep it simple. There's a lot in this passage, as you just heard uh, Tommy read through. Um, but before I start, I, did, I just have to say that um, you have an incredible pastor. You have an incredible shepherd family. Um, he and Sarah walked with my life, Alexa, um, through the toughest season of her life. And, and the impact y'all have made on her is incredible. And, and I will forever be grateful to you guys for that. So just know, Grace Life, you have an amazing shepherd um, over you. I want to introduce you this morning to a man named Hiro Onoda. Hiro Onoda, um, I was first introduced to this man through a podcast. I'm a recent convert to podcasts. You know, I knew they were around, but I never really listened to them until this past January. I switched jobs and I have a lot of drive time now. So I figured I might as well start listening to, to uh, some podcasts. And a friend recommended one um, on history. So it's, it's called Hardcore History. He has a, a six part series on World War I. So it's six episodes. Each episode is at least three and a half hours, if not four hours long. And it was riveting. It was amazing. Like, so incredible. I know I sound like probably a complete nerd right now, but I would highly recommend it. So then there's another series this guy does on uh, Japanese culture and society and politics leading up to World War II. So my wife is a quarter Japanese. You know, they have that heritage in their family. So I figured, why not? Might as well give it a listen. And the host of this podcast begins the show by talking about Hiro Onoda. This guy was a soldier, a Japanese soldier in World War II. And so, so what happens is he's dropped off on an island in the Philippines, and he's told by his commanding officer, stay here, do anything and everything you can do to hamper allied activities on this island. We'll come back for you, and we'll relieve you of your duties when your job is done. But for right now, hide out in the jungle, do whatever you can to help us win this war. So Hiro Onoda does his job. He has a small group of men. Slowly but surely, some of them um, are killed, unfortunately. Some of them end up deserting him. And he ends up by himself in this jungle, in the Philippines, fighting this war. And eventually, in 1974, 74, Hiro Onoda is relieved of his duties by his commanding officer. That is 30 years about after the war was over. This dude was living in the jungle by himself in the Philippines fighting a war that was over for 30 years because his commanding officer had not come back to relieve him of his duty. Insanity. And, and the host of this podcast asked the question, what kind of society, what kind of culture can produce a soldier that is so willing to give his entire life fighting for their cause. And the crazy thing is, Hiro Onoda was not the only soldier of Japan to surrender in 1974. There was another guy. 
and several the year before and, and tons in the 60s. Like, it's insane. You need to look this stuff up. It is crazy. But hopefully this morning, we can actually take a lesson from Hiro Onoda, even though it seems insane to us. He was living and fighting for something much bigger than himself. The reason he was willing to survive in the jungle for 30 years, three decades, was because his life was not about him. He was living and fighting for something much bigger than himself. So hopefully we can actually learn a lesson from this insane, crazy Japanese soldier. So as we, as we dive into the text, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 21, but I wanted to read the entire chapter because our passage begins with a therefore. And so Peter gives us these commands, but we need to understand why he's giving us these commands. So this is a, a letter written by the Apostle Peter about 2,000 years ago. He's writing to Christians spread out through uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. And these believers are suffering uh, for their faith. They're being persecuted, um, socially rejected. They're now outcasts of society. And they're even suffering physically for the gospel, for the name of Jesus. Um, so Peter, as we, as we see him in the gospels, you know, he's this outspoken disciple um, you actually probably know Peter a little bit better than you think you do. Uh, church history tells us that Peter was one of the main sources for Mark in writing his gospel. So I understand that, you know, Tommy's been walking y'all through the gospel of Mark. So Peter's fingerprints are all over that book. And we get to see his heart in this letter as well. So like I said, these Christians are suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith. And uh, I do want to just give a, a, a brief warning. Um, as, as we in America, we, we don't really understand what these Christians are going through um, firsthand. So there is a danger in equating our first world problems with the suffering, the various trials that Peter talks about in this book. Um, we don't want to belittle what these Christians were going through. We want to understand their context. And thankfully, there are principles that can still apply to us in our current situation and in our context. So Peter in the first chapter comes out swinging. He knows these Christians are suffering, they're starving for encouragement, so he just wants to pour out gospel truth over them to encourage them. He just, he's like Rocky Balboa stepping in the ring, he just starts throwing haymakers. He doesn't give any cute little introductions about Japanese soldiers like some people like to do. He just starts preaching the gospel because he wants to remind these believers that it's worth it, that their situation will be worth it. So he reminds them in the very first verse, you heard uh, the, the phrase elect exiles. So right away, Peter reminds these Christians of their identity as elect exiles. It's almost like this oxymoron. Um, the, to say uh, you're chosen and precious, but you're, you're a refugee. There's a pastor out in Texas uh, who, who translates this so we can understand it. Peter's basically saying, you are refugee billionaires. And that, that doesn't make sense to us, but that is what these Christians are. And that's what we are in this world. We are chosen yet rejected. We are we're precious yet we're outcast. And he's reminding them there's something bigger 
going on here. So with, with all of this in mind, he, he talks about God's unbelievable and abundant mercy, the new life we've been born into, we have salvation, which brings us joy and hope because of all this amazing truth, therefore. And now we're at the passage that we want to focus in on today. So therefore, I'll read verse 13 again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here in this verse, Peter commands, this is the first command in the whole letter. He says, set your hope on Jesus Christ. Have hope. And the phrase to start this verse, preparing your minds, it's, it, it's an image of, of rolling up the sleeves of your mind. Let's, let's get ready to work. It, and it's weird for us because uh, when we think of the mind, we think of reflection and, and just thinking. We don't think of action. But Peter says, look, you're going to have to put your mind to work. Let's roll up the sleeves. He's saying, get your mind right. You know, the, the NBA finals uh, just happened. And I love the NBA. Basketball is amazing. And... Uh, I can just see the players in the tunnel. They're about to go out for this giant game. Tens of thousands of fans are watching in the stadium, and then millions more are watching on TV. The players are are getting ready for the game. They're telling each other, all right, get your mind right. Let's lock in. Ignore all the fans, all the outside noise. Let's go. We We gotta get your mind right. Let's do this. And actually, NBA players, um, and all athletes really have recently been uh, more and more focusing on the mental aspect of the game. And I, I wanna read you a quote about Steph Curry. So he's a, he's a basketball player for the Warriors. He's been to five straight finals, I think it is. And he intentionally prepares his mind, not just his body, but his mind for a game of basketball. And it's pretty intense. Let me read you this really quick. Most professional basketball players have a deliberate practice psychological approach to the game. More than many athletes, though, Steph Curry pays special attention to training in all aspects of his performance. He works on his mindset constantly and has a very different perspective for practice. For example, Curry does neurological drills, which use highly engineered simulated game situations to allow him to mentally overload so that he can increase his awareness and get into a flow state more easily in actual games. Curry also involves his family in this pregame routine. He focuses on them to help remind himself of perspective and what's important. So if a basketball player puts this much effort into his mental readiness for the game, how much more so should we prepare our minds to live in a world that will be hostile to our faith? What makes us think that that we'll be ready when opposition comes if we're not doing anything to prepare ourselves? So if if an NBA player puts this much effort into a game, that means ultimately nothing. How much more shows should we prepare ourselves? You know, it's been said, uh, if God is to have your heart, he must first have your mind. So instead of uh, looking forward in hope, we, we like to often live our lives right here, right? So we have our daily activities, our to-do list, our jobs, our marriages, 
our friends, we're, we're always looking right here. And these things are important, like these things have to get done. But it's almost like in this passage, Peter, uh, the Holy Spirit through Peter is, is kind of like trying to nudge our chin up. You know, like a parent talking to a kid and say, hey, hey, look up, I'm talking to you. You know, we, we love to be right here and we get so focused and, and just distracted right here. And, and it's like the Holy Spirit's just like, hey, there's more going on here. Look up. I know, like Peter talking to these Christians, I know you're suffering. I know he's not belittling what they're going through. He's just reminding them, hey, look up. There's, there's a lot more going on here that we tend to ignore. And here in an American context, we uh, are often addicted to distraction. But when, when the Holy Spirit gives us this reminder, when he's, when he's nudging our chin up, he's giving us a, a reminder that uh, seems harsh. This, this is actually, what I'm about to say, is blasphemous in our culture right now. But what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that your life is not about you. Your life is not about you. That's in, in our American society where freedom and autonomy is the golden calf and it's worshiped, saying this is blasphemy. But I just want to gently remind all of us this morning, God has been trying to get this through my thick skull for months now. And uh, I just, I need this reminder every single day, your life is not about you which means your job is not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your kids are not about you. Your, your friends, your church is not about you. Life is not about you. And that might sound harsh, but it's actually a beautiful reminder that our life is not about us. And Peter shows us this in verse seven, because he tells the believers, your faith is being tested to be genuine so that it may result not in our praise, not in our glory, but to the praise and glory of Jesus. That's what our life is about. That's why these believers are suffering. And in, uh, in our context, I know um, for those of you who, who grew up in church, we are always told, obviously and thankfully, we are told to look back to the cross, right? To be reminded of what God has done for us. To look back at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is essential. But I feel like it's been underemphasized that we also have a faith that looks forward as well. It's, it goes both ways. We have a forward-looking faith. We don't only, we obviously, yes, we look back to Jesus, but that's not it. We also look forward. Jesus is coming back. There's a, there's a future hope that Peter talks about throughout this whole chapter. We have a hope, an inheritance that's being kept for us, and we are being kept for it. We're being guarded by God. Look forward. There's a hope. God is, he's coming back. We're going to be resurrected. He's coming to make all things new, to wipe away every tear, to put an end to sin and suffering, and to make all sad things become untrue. That's what we have to look forward to. We have a forward-looking faith. And this is what Peter's telling us, to get our mind right, look to that, look forward. But I can't, um, I can't talk about the mind and, and how we must prepare it without acknowledging the fact that we as believers can go through seasons where 
our mind isn't right. There are seasons of intense doubt, of intense hopelessness, where we don't feel hope at all. It just takes a a brief read through the Psalms to see just how low we can get as followers of God. And, And I have to say that those seasons are real. You're not alone. Those doubts are real and they're, they're hard and difficult. And you might be trying your, your very best to, to seek God and to look to him, but he just seems nowhere to be found. But I just want to remind all of us that hope is not a feeling. I know those seasons are um, honestly impossible to get through on our own, but hope is not based on how we feel or what we ourselves can do. Hope is, is based in the finished work of Jesus. So just, I, I wanna read a quote um, from Charles Spurgeon. He, he's talking about the account where uh, ancient Israel, there was serpents in the camp and if anyone was bitten, he, he made a gold serpent and he raised it up in the middle of the camp and he says, if you are bit, just look at this and you'll be saved. So that, this is what Spurgeon's talking about in this quote. But it is, it is so encouraging to any of you who, who feel like you do not have hope. You feel like your faith is just not strong enough. Let me read you this. Oh, I love to see poor souls trying to trust Christ, trying to rest in Jesus. They often make sorry work of it, but still the Lord accepts it. For with their hearts, they are really trying to rest in Jesus. If you, poor trembling seeker, if your faith should bring you no comfort because it is so weak, keep on trusting to Christ. When the bronze serpent was lifted up, all who looked to it were healed. There were doubtless some clear, bright eyes that saw the bronze serpent from its head to its tail, and as they looked, they lived. But there were probably others who were so bitten by the serpents that their eyes were swollen and dim They could only see out of the corner of their eyes, and the death damp seemed to blind even that little bit of sight which they had. But oh, if they could only get just a glimpse, so as to see the glittering brass, though they could not make out the shape of the servant, yet they lived. They were bid to look, and if they looked and could not see, yet the promise was not to those who could see, but to the looking. And so as they looked, they were healed. Thus, look to Jesus, and you shall live. So this hope that is based in the gospel, not in ourselves, motivates the next two commands that Peter gives us. So let's read verses 14 through 16 again. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So our hope motivates holiness. The next command is be holy. And uh, John Piper is very helpful on, on this passage. He says, if you forget the first command to hope, then you'll legalize the second. Right? If we forget to hope and we just focus on being holy, we, we've got it all wrong. We've got it messed up, so don't forget the first command when you read this one. So I have to take at least a quick minute right here, um, and in a sermon where I tell you your life's not about you, I can't make the sermon all about us. 
we have to uh, just sit here for a minute and think about what it means for God himself to be holy. Because we hear that phrase all the time, what does that even mean? Well, we know that um, for us to be holy or for something to be holy, it is set apart, right? I'm, heard you, I'm sure you've heard that definition before. Holiness is to be set apart. So like in ancient Israel, there was, there was bread, holy bread in the temple, it was set apart. Or the Sabbath day was holy, it was an entire day set apart for God. Or the entire tribe of Levi, they were set apart to be priests. So to be holy is to be set apart to God. But for God, he is not set apart to anything beyond himself. For God to be holy, he is set apart un- unto himself. Right? He's, he's not just in a different category, like he's beyond categories. He's not just on another level than us, he's beyond the levels. He's, he's so other than, like there's the creator, God, and everything else is the created. So when we talk about God's holiness, we, we use adjectives to describe God like he's righteous, he's beautiful, he is in love. He's not just righteous, right? He's the standard of righteousness. He's not just beautiful, he's the standard of beauty and the source of all beauty. He's not just loving, he is love, the standard of love and the source of all love. Like in our minds, you might be thinking, what does that even mean? I can't comprehend what that even looks like. Thankfully, God came down and showed us what it looked like, right? And y'all have been going through the Gospel of Mark and you've seen God's holiness on full display in the person, in words, and work of Jesus. And I know Tommy has been faithful to show you how incredible and how holy God is through Jesus, through the way he loves sinners, the miracles that he does, the, the grace that he displays, that is where we can go to see the holiness of God. So God is the, he's the source of our hope in the first command and he's the standard of our holiness. And that's uh, a scary thought. But thankfully in chapter two of first Peter, uh, he tells us that we are already a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart to God. So if we are already declared righteous and holy, we are already declared holy because of the gospel. So what does this command mean? Well, it's to, to live out that holiness. It's almost like, so in, in the beginning of verse 14, he reminds the believers that they are God's children. So it's almost like he's saying, all right, you're God's kids now, so act like it, right? Like you've been declared holy, so live as if you've been declared holy. And it's important to remember here, let's see where I'm at. Hope is our motivation. I do want to stress that Christianity is not about rule following. It's very easy to take this verse, rip it out of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and say, be holy for God is holy, and make Christianity about following the rules, when it's not. That's what the whole first part of the chapter was. We couldn't follow the rules, so we went to Jesus, and now we have hope in him, because he followed the rules. But at the same time, we can't forget that there are rules, like God does command us to do certain things. And uh, because we can't keep the rules, we like, not like, but we tend to view the law um, and God's commands in a negative light, as if they are bad, but they're not. We're, we're the problem, not God's rules. Um, and if you read Psalm 119, like David is talking about how incredible 
the law and the words of God are. Like his rules are good for us. We tend to to mix it up and think the rules are bad when in fact we're the issue. But God's rules are good. And, And the hope we have in Jesus is what motivates us to follow the commands. There's a band that um, I like to listen to called King's Kaleidoscope, and uh, they made an album all about spiritual apathy, just not caring. And one of the lines is, let me read it. What if all the talk is just faith without the walk? We love to, I mean, I'm talking to myself here. I'm in seminary, so we love to talk about the Bible, talk about God, understand what his word means, but when, when does that take away from us actually living out what it says? You know what I mean? Like, let's just actually start doing the things that we're talking about. What if all the talk is faith without the walk? Let's remember that the rules of God are good and let's live them out. So the next command is to live in fear. Let's read uh, verses 17 through 21. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What in the world is going on here? For the entire chapter, Peter Peter tells us to hope and then he tells us to live in fear. What is, like those things in our mind uh, don't go together, to hope and to fear. But here, Peter, uh, as you can see on the screen, the to fear God, you know, we, we like to talk about reverence and that word, what does that even mean? Like it's a little uh, outdated maybe. So a good phrase that I've heard used is to fear God is to take God seriously. So when God says to do something, you do it. When God tells you to believe something, you believe it. When we fear God, we are taking God seriously. So he goes back to the gospel again here. And he, he uses um, adjectives, again, that seem to be at odds. Like in the, in the first verse, he refers to God as our father and as our judge. And I think what he's saying here is, look, just because uh, the judge sitting up there is your daddy doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, right? Like you're not going to get this special treatment just because judge is, is your dad, right? He's saying there is an impartial judgment that comes into play here. And we don't want to, you know, take advantage of our position um, in grace, which we'll talk about that more in a minute. But here, Peter brings up fear, um, I think, obviously for a couple reasons, where to fear God and take God seriously. But when, when the, for these Christians living in a hostile environment, suffering for their faith, it comes down to who they fear more. Are you going to fear God more or are you going to fear man? Because if you fear man more than God, you're, you're not going to survive in this context that you're living in. 
And if anybody knows what it's like to fear man more than God, it's uh, Peter. So thankfully, we have examples in Scripture of Peter um, fearing man more than God. And we know that just because he, he fell into that trap doesn't mean he's disowned by God, right? So we have the example of him in, uh, right after Jesus is arrested, Peter denies Christ three times. One time to a little servant girl. He was so scared of man that he completely rejected Jesus in that situation. He said, no, I don't know Jesus at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Because he feared man more than God. In another, uh, one of Paul's letters, Paul like straight up calls out Peter in the Bible, which is kind of embarrassing, but uh, it's encouraging for us. So Peter was, um, he was ignoring Gentile believers and hanging out with the Jewish believers because he feared what the Jewish believers would think if he was hanging out with the Gentiles. Because he feared man in that moment more than he feared God. So it comes down to fear. Who are you going to fear more? Who, who do you take more seriously, God or man? And uh, honestly, I just have to share that I personally struggle with this a lot. Um, and it's, it's almost like to an irrational level. So um, I'll give you an example. So I do the dishes. We don't have a dishwasher in our house. And I tend to forget that they even exist. But we do a lot of dishes. And when you do dishes, at least for me, my hands get super dry. And so I wear I, dish gloves, man. I'm unashamed of it. I wear like straight up dish gloves, like full on feminine looking dish gloves. And I don't care who knows, right? Like, because it's practical. I don't want my hands to be dry and terrible. So like, I, have, I work at uh, like a security company, home security. I don't mind telling my coworkers that at all. Like, so what, I wear dish gloves. But any time that my savior comes up, it's almost like I have to try so hard not to offend them in any possible way, and I change the way I say things so that they'll not think I'm weird or crazy. Like, what is that? Like, I should probably be embarrassed about my dish gloves. Why, why on earth would I fear them more than God in that situation? It's hard. It, it's hard, but it, we are to take God seriously and fear him more than man. Because what can man do to me? We are to fear God. But I believe there's actually even something else uh, we should be fearing here. And there's, uh, I guess, an illustration that I'll use. If any, have you seen the movie Taken? Liam Neeson. Um, so for those of you who haven't seen it, Liam Neeson is a boss, and uh, his daughter goes on a trip to Europe, and he's like a former CIA agent or something. He's really good at killing people, and uh, he is, you know, a little hesitant about this trip. He says, be careful. Her daughter's like, Dad, I'll be fine. Of course, she gets kidnapped when she goes over there, and she's sold into the, sl the sex slave industry. And so the rest of the movie is about Liam Neeson. Uh, pretty much killing everybody, and spoiler alert, he gets to his daughter, right? He puts his life on the line, he goes and gets his little girl. So what if at the end of the movie, Liam Neeson finds his daughter and she says, you know what, Dad? I see what you've done here. You know, it's pretty cool. You came here to uh, save me and stuff, and what if she just, like, kind of gave her dad the finger and said, I'm good. 
I actually kind of like these guys. I love being abused and enslaved to these men. Like that would make no sense, right? And Peter is saying here, he reminds us of what Jesus did to us, did for us, so that we won't belittle and devalue the blood of Jesus. So how precious is the blood of Jesus to you? We, we need to remember what he's done for us. And one commentator says this, whenever we find ourselves trapped and enslaved to sin, when all we can do is continue grasping for the pleasures of the world, we reveal to the world and to God that we place too little value on the grace that is to be ours with the coming of Jesus Christ. So we are to fear God, we are to take him seriously, and we are to fear sin and fear devaluing the blood of Jesus. Let's remember how precious and how incredible the blood of Jesus is. So after this, Peter zooms out again because he knows we will sin and we will fall into this trap of fearing man more than God. And so he reminds us of the gospel once again. This plan of salvation has been in place. You have hope. You have a hope. You already are declared holy and righteous. So the story is about God's love given to us through the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why our hope is in God and not in ourselves. Because we, we will, I mean, we will fear man, we will devalue the blood of Jesus no matter how much we don't wanna do those things. But that's why our hope is in God. So we are commanded to get our minds right and look to Jesus. And there's a, a passage in Psalm 147 that fits uh, honestly perfectly with with what we're talking about. It's talking about God, it says, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. So God's delight is not in our efforts. Our temptation is to read a passage like this and create a laundry list of things we need to do better, but that's not what God's pleasure is in. It's when we fear him and when we hope in him because our life is not about us, right? Our life's not about us. We want to live for something bigger. We want to be willing to fight in the jungle for 30 years, however long it is, because we're living and fighting for something much bigger than ourselves. And that's, that's the simple encouragement Peter's giving to this, these believers suffering. That's the encouragement I wanna give to you, Grace Life, this morning. Hope in the gospel, be holy as God is holy, and live in fear. No matter how uh, contradictory those commands sound, that's what we are called to do. And if, if you're here listening, you're not a Christian, you're, somebody got you to, to visit and check out church, if you, if you are living here, and you're tired of this, and you feel like there is no hope, there is, right? If, if, if you just feel the slightest nudge on your chin to look up, don't ignore it. The Holy Spirit wants you to look up and say, look what I've done for you. There's something so much bigger than your day-to-day activities. Look up. There, God loves you, 
and wants you to know that and he wants you to love him. So if you, if you feel that, please don't ignore it. From my understanding, I think there's a prayer team that meets in the back. Don't leave without asking or telling someone that you, you feel the Holy Spirit um, nudging you to look to him. So with that being said, there, believer, remember there is hope. If you're not a Christian, there is hope. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for your word and how encouraging yet challenging it is. God, I pray you will use uh, this feeble attempt to talk about it, um, to encourage our hearts, to challenge us to live for you, to love you more, to just cherish the hope that we have, to look forward to the inheritance that we have, to hope in the gospel, Lord, to, to try to be holy like you through your grace, not through our own efforts, God, to no longer be conformed to our old former ways, but to live in fear of you, in fear of sin, knowing that ultimately it has already been conquered because of Jesus. God, so I pray for Grace Life, Lord, that you would use this body of believers to reach their communities for Jesus, God, that the insiders would reach the outsiders and the outsiders would become insiders, Lord. And we pray that, that all of our efforts, God, would be for you, about you, not about us, God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.